Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. I'm thrilled. Well, I'm thrilled about a bunch of things. One, Happy New Year, everybody. Two, I'm thrilled to be back doing the podcast. I have missed this conversation with everybody these past three months while I've been working and trying to think about how I wanted to approach this for 2022. And the number one rule for me, and it's basically been the guiding light for the podcast the whole time, is I will only have conversations with people whose work fascinates me or whose career arc fascinates me, whose personal story fascinates me. And some of those people will be people you've heard of. Some of those people will be people who've been on the podcast before. Some will be people who are new to all of us. And then I'm also going to do episodes where I just talk to you and answer questions that you send in. And uh, essentially, I'm going to do this podcast for the reasons I did it when I started it. And I'm going to continue to not think about any other ramifications of it. And uh, I can't tell you how many times I run into somebody who says, I've listened to the first episode you did with your wife, Amy Koppelman, the filmmaker, novelist, more than one time. Meaning people listened to that last episode Amy and I did two, three times. And I understand why, because I have been listening to Amy talk for 30 plus years and I still want to hit the rewind button and hear what she says again about stuff because she only speaks when she really has something to say. And she's one of the least full of shit people I've ever met. Um, this past year, Amy's movie, A Mouthful of Air, was released in theaters all across the country. And this week, it's going to be available on demand wherever videos on demand are available. And um, this film stars Amanda Seyfried and Finn Whitrock and Amy Irving. And it's a devastating and devastatingly beautiful work. And it is something, look, I've watched the movie 20 times and uh, read the novel uh, in many iterations. And I have to say, uh, it's required viewing. And Amy's story is as remarkable uh, the way she got the movie made as 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 the film is. And uh, I just can't wait to talk to her here with all of you. Amy Koppelman, welcome back to The Moment. Thank you for having me, I think. <laughs> well... Yeah, I mean the good the good news for you is, and it's also the bad news is like we can keep going till we get it right. Yes. There's no escape. Yes. I would ask you to maybe speak louder. Okay. Thank you for the very nice introduction. You're welcome, babe. <laughs> um, hey, Aim. I think a good like when the last episode we did, you spoke really well about how and why you wrote the novel, and, and but here's where I want to start. I want to I want to just start with how you thought about two aspects of this. Because a lot of people wrote about this movie as though it were a true story. Sometimes people will stop you, I'll be with you, and they'll go like, I can't believe you went through all that. And you're like, listen, it's not my life. It's got a lot of the outer elements of my life. And it's about something that mattered a lot to me. But as an artist, how do you think about building story? And how do you, because something people ignore here or don't focus on enough is the level of craft it takes to make something seem so believable that people have to assume it's from your real experience. So can you just talk a little bit about how you, your process of discovering story? Mostly, I guess the answer to this is I know the feeling I want to write about. And I think I've probably said this before, but I knew in a mouthful of air, I wanted to write about shame, um, real sh shame versus, you know, the perceived shame that we carry with us for things that we think we did was that were wrong. And if I kept thinking about that feeling of shame and the emotion I understood, then it would follow me 
to a scene and then I would work backwards and be able to figure out what the story was. With the movie, I looked at the book and I tried to, I put, I wrote all the scenes out and then I tried to conflate them. You're, you're saying that you take the scenes and you try to make sure you don't repeat an emotion or that you're trying to collapse them down so that, so that there's an emotional... Well, with a novel, I never have any intention other than just believing in my heart that if I stay true to the feeling that I'm writing about, and if I listen very hard to the, the voice inside of my head, that ultimately I'll find my way to the story. If I just stay true to the character or to the character's pain in this case um, and feelings of shame. In a movie, it's different because I had the book and... I had to figure out how to make all the interior thought, you know, manifest in a scene and then not keep repeating the same emotional beats and make sure that I thought about in each scene, you know, what what is happening, not only like she's getting from point A to point B, like that's what's actually happening in the scene, but what's emotionally happening to her and where she is in the beginning of the scene versus the end of the scene and how she gets there emotionally. Every and Everything I do comes out of the character. And that's why plot's very hard for me. That always feels super imposed. You mean, yeah, twisty plots or trying to come up with what the obstacles are. You work hard to make sure that doesn't feel artificial to you. Yeah. And the problem is, you know, then to some reviewers or critics, then they don't feel important enough. But I think for all of us, most of the time, they're little tiny moments that change the trajectory of our lives, little tiny decisions or little tiny fears that, you know, manifest and, you know, change the course of our destiny, I guess, to say for better or worse. Well, often, you know, um, anyone who listens to this, who's read various things I've said knows that Brian De Palma and I don't necessarily always see things the same way. But one thing Brian De Palma said that I completely agree with is that Critics can only write in the mores of their own time, meaning a, a critic is limited by what is in fashion. And so as an artist, it's really hard to divorce yourself from that stuff. But it's important, I think, that we work hard to do so. And it's also important to say your movie's fresh on Rotten Tomatoes. So. <laughs> uh, and I, let's, go, let's go further for a second because we'll, we'll, we'll circle back. I want to... I want to talk about certain aspects of what it's like to actually have a movie come, go out into the world and, and the pressure of that. But the other half of this on this movie, so Amy, you wrote I Smile Back, which was directed by Adam Salky. And although you were on set every day for that and you cast Sarah Silverman in the movie and were really producerial on that movie, you weren't the director. Here, you directed it, wrote it, and produced it, along with your partner, Mike Harrop. Uh, he produced with you. And... Talk a little bit uh, about how you kept those um, that emotional North Star, how that guided you in all the aspects of directing a film. Talk a little bit about how it guided you in terms of how you thought about set design, how you thought about camera, how you thought about staging scenes. Well, the set design, I knew, I knew what that looked like because that had lived in my imagination for a long time. Um, Amanda and I worked, you know, for years trying to raise the money to make this film. And we ended up having three and a half weeks of prep. And so I wasn't able to um, storyboard each scene. But I knew that if I filmed everything very simply, if I didn't try to be fancy, I learned the word from you, uninflected. <laughs> and um, I knew if I filmed everything straight on, like as if it were a stage set, and the only thing I paid attention to was Amanda's eyes, were Amanda's eyes. And I knew every time what the emotion was that she needed to convey and what the change in her eyes needed to be. I just believed, I don't, I, it's this crazy thing and galling in retrospect, like how do you write a movie or a book with this three act structure and then think it's gonna get made into a, a movie and then somehow somebody who has a hard time, you know, figuring out how, what to order, you know, in the coffee shop, um, you know, how to direct a movie, but I, I just believed that I could do it. I just kept thinking of 
having this moment of being able to reach people who still didn't understand that what was happening to them after having a baby was not their fault. You know, that the feelings of insecurity or shame or, or self-doubt, that they weren't strange or weird, like that they weren't alone. And so every time I get got nervous, then I would just think about that. Um, I do remember, though, the night before shooting, coming home and shutting the door, you answering the door, and me, I started crying, and I was like, oh, my God, I don't know what the fuck I got myself into, but you said that's what every director Francis Ford Coppola said. Like. <laughs> well, but no, I want to push back on a couple things because um, I think it's at times something that women, are, and you've talked about this before, women are, like, conditioned to say things like, who did I think I was to go and shoot something? Because you're not supposed to, like our generation put your you know stick your neck out because i want to challenge you on, on when you say well who was i'm you know i didn't know where to put a camera i mean i i don't think you're being honest with yourself or me or the audience i don't think that's how you felt and yes the night before you panicked everybody does but you studied yes. you drew you've been an artist someone who's an artist and who's painted and drawn for uh, or drawn for for forever you drew every animation cell in the movie. You had a, an illustrator who helped uh, fill stuff in. Mark was brilliant. Uh, um, what's Mark's last name? Sam Sonovich. Well, he made everything move. He right. Did everything. He, but, you, but you drew the images. And, uh, I, and you uh, may not have had a professional storyboardist for the whole thing, but you drew how you wanted to shoot the movie. You understood it. That is true. I did draw stick figures. Yeah, that's true. I, I mean, everybody on their first movie feels like they don't know where to put the camera. But in fact, why don't you talk a little bit about how you prepared? Meaning, yes, you only had three weeks of official prep, but what your family saw was you working for years and years and years to manifest because it, 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 nobody just shows up and it's like, hey, you want to go direct a movie? It's <laughs> like you had to do. And when I didn't think it was positive, you know, all these no's and I'm sitting there going, she's going to get her heart broken again. She's going to get her heart broken again. So, I mean, please talk a little bit for people out there who want to do this about, well, okay, if you've never directed before, but you have something you're really passionate about, how do you convince people to let you direct the movie? How do you prepare actually? Not that, oh, I didn't know what to do. How do you prepare to do it? Yeah, the truth is I'll never really understand that dichotomy that lives inside of me where like on one hand I'm very insecure and get nervous and on the other hand I get pissed off and keep submitting things because I'm like, wait, why the fuck don't you see that what I have to say is important? But I think that writing about women and writing about maternal mental health, writing about, you know, when I smile back, a woman who, you know, like a man, she fucks to escape. That's not an accepted thing. A woman just wanting to have sex, whereas like with a man going to Vegas and sleeping with a woman, that's, you know, something it's just like, oh, that's what men do. And the only thing that's worse is a woman who doesn't know how to love her child or doesn't somehow have this like mysterious, you know, blessing that comes down when the baby's born that somehow makes them, you know, maternal. Um, that they don't have the maternal instinct, that is really the shame of all shames. Because if you don't have the maternal instinct, you know, at least for me and the way I was raised, then you had really no value. Um, so I, I just kept, I guess, writing about those things and trying to convey that was always somehow was a stronger emotion than my insecurities. So I guess the answer to that is, I was very upset after I small back. You're right. I mean, I had a kind of quiet anger in me. I mean, I remember being on set and starting to cry and saying to Adam Salky, you don't have it. You don't have it. And I was crying. And I was like, you might think I'm crying because I'm sad, but I'm not. I'm crying because um, I'm angry. And I do think the idea of getting angry or the idea of asking for too much, which, of course, asking to direct a movie, you know, is too much and God might punish you. I just want to say that the, the, it's not that Adam Salky, the director of Iceman Back, did anything wrong. He did nothing wrong. He did a great job directing that movie. But when you are the writer on a movie and you want it to be your way, the, you have to demand to direct the next movie. It's a director's medium. 
Well, because he was coming at it from a different place. He was coming at it from, you know, the, the way the scene looked visually um, much more than the emotions that Sarah was supposed to be feeling. And that frustrated me because I always think it ended up being a film that people thought was about an alcoholic instead of a film that was about a person with like, you know, a bipolar personality disorder, um, somebody with borderline personality disorder, that that was a symptom of that. Okay, actually, I can answer this question now. I was able to get to Amanda through her husband, Tommy. Thomas Sadowski, yeah. And I wrote him an email and I said, I'm sorry um, if this is wrong, but if there's any way, would it be okay if I sent you a letter to forward to Amanda? And I knew that they had just had a baby and I said, you know, congratulations. And he wrote back and he said, sure. And so I sent her the letter and I said, you know, in the letter, what it was that I saw in her eyes and why I thought her eyes could convey um, the pain that I had been writing about because, you know, she's a very loved, you know, beloved actress. She's has perky, happy eyes, but there's a depth in them. And I, I knew she had had OCD, so I knew she would understand the anxiety because she had spoken about that of uh, motherhood. And so I wrote her, she wrote me back, I sent her the script and months went by and I hadn't heard from her. And then I finally wrote her one day. It was, um, it actually ended up being the night of the Met Gala. I, I didn't know that, but afterwards I felt so stupid the next day when I was like, hi, have you had a chance to read the script? And then I saw all these pictures of her at the Met Gala the night before. Um, so obviously she was busy, but she, she read the script and I flew out there to meet her. And um, she said, I, I'll do this, but the only thing is you can't direct this movie. And I had this moment of going like, oh shit, the same thing's gonna happen. But then at that same moment, I thought, well, it's okay. It's more important to tell this story to you know, reach that one woman out there. Because what happened was I had never thought about making this movie into a film. I mean, making this book, book into a film, film. Yeah. And then one day I was driving down the West Side Highway and this woman called into doctor's radio and what she was describing, how she was feeling, I knew that that was postpartum depression. And when she you know, explained this, the doctors on Doctors Radio were like, well, you need to tell your partner, you need to tell your pediatrician, you need to tell your clergy. And the woman kept saying, I can't, I can't, I can't. And for some reason in my memory, I remember her hat standing by an ironing board. And every time I got nervous, I would just, as silly as it sounds, think of that woman standing by the ironing board. And so when Amanda said I couldn't direct it, I thought, okay, well, that's okay because if I can get this movie made and get this movie made with her, then people will talk about it. And I knew more people were talking about it because I had seen, you know, on the cover of People magazine, an actress would be talking about postpartum depression. But I realized at that moment when I was driving that not everybody knew about it. So I said, okay. And then we spent months trying to find a director for the movie. And we kept going around. And finally, we almost got this one really great director. It was very exciting. And then she said, I can't do it because uh, you're supposed to be directing it, meaning me. And I knew Amanda didn't want me to direct it. So I sent her an email saying, look, that's OK. We don't need to um, do this. Like, I'm so glad that we became friends. and. I know you don't want to do it with me directing. I get that. You think I'm too Well, because it can be a big risk for a first-time director. You've never directed before. It's your book. You're adapting. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, again, that goes back to being, you know, it's gall a galling ask in the first place. And then she said, no, you can direct it. And Well, by that point, you'd also drawn a whole bunch of things and put together a whole lookbook. You're, you're skipping a lot of steps that I'm glad I was able to witness. I have a few things I want to sort of push back on here. One... <laughs> You know, Aim, you get into this groove because it's easy to get into this groove of talking about the movie as a useful tool to help women solve postpartum depression. 
And I understand why, because you had to say all that bullshit to get the movie made. And I know it's not bullshit. You really mean it. That really did happen, that phone call. But I also know that it's not really what the movie's about. And that uh, it's not why you wanted to tell the movie. In your heart and soul, you want, I think, you've said a million times to me, it's not a public service announcement. It's a piece of art. And I think you're, the surface notes of this are absolutely what you're talking about. And they're really important. But I think you're like talking about other things that you snuck in there. And this is the time. Look, people are at home. They have a lot of choices on, on what to watch. And they can read about postpartum depression. You've gotten them there. You've done a lot of, you've been on Elvis's show, which is my favorite interview you've ever done. Uh, you've done all this stuff. But why don't you talk a little bit about like, what you're really doing with the movie. Yes, factually, you might've said to Amanda, all right, we will walk away from this. But you're presenting it like you had a couple meetings with a couple of directors. I mean, you're not talking about the work that you did. And I and for people at home who wanna do this for their lives. Yeah. I mean, talk about what the work, what, what did Amanda see you do? What did these directors see you do? Why would a director say that to you? What did you put on the table in front of that director? I know the answer, so but you've never talked about it. So say, explain it. I uh, made a full lookbook of what every room should look like, down to you know the wallpaper, where to buy it. Um, I worked with my friend Kathy Holden, and and I explained what all the colors meant. And so, like the whole color palette for the film. When you say every room, you mean you preset designed the whole thing. Yes. You made a book that would show with like fabric tears what every wall would look like in every room in the movie. And you didn't just casually do that. You presented that book to people, right? How, how about the wardrobe? I did the same thing with the wardrobe. Um, and Amanda said she wanted Julie to have a career. So I had to figure out how to manifest her internal you know, her emotions um, on screen. And I was able to do that by making her a children's book artist. And I had always, I had this story that um, I used to always tell Anna. Our daughter. About this little character named Pinky Tinkerbink who was born with this very, very ugly finger. And the kids would make fun of her. And I came up with this story because Anna had an eye patch and she was very dyslexic like me, and so she got bullied a lot. And I made a story about this little girl whose ugly finger ended up being a key that could unlock, you know, could could unlock all sorts of things. And she could, you know, find the stars that were stolen. And and so this little pinky. Uh, how the parts of you, what you're you're talking about here, as the Sam Mendes used to call like the secret buried inside the movies. What you're talking about is how the ugly part of you can be the thing that saves you if you can find a way to love that part of you instead of hate that part of you. Yeah, right? and it could, that it might be the thing that's the most beautiful about you. Yes, and that and to make a movie about someone who doesn't recognize what's beautiful in themselves. Yes. And allows themselves to be defeated instead of finding a way to use the most beautiful part of themselves, not only to save themselves, but to heal and help others around them. And that, that is part of why this story has haunted you for so long and why you've wanted to tell it, right? Well, yeah, well, I wanted to write about trauma and yeah. the legacy of trauma. And I think often when you have a child, all the you know devices you've used in your life to function, you know, to move forward, to suppress memory or whatever, they go, they fall by the wayside because you have this, this little child comes out in the world. It's, you know, so innocent. And it looks up at you with these like big eyes thinking that you have all the answers and that you're going to protect it. And you can't help but remember all the ways in which, you know, you weren't protected. And the thought of that, the thought of failing your child um, I understood that thought and I understood what Julie was thinking. And I guess in retrospect, I was just writing through the fear of what if I hadn't got the help that I needed? And sure. 
Yes, uh, some of that we've talked about on the other podcast, but I, I want to get to. <laughs> I haven't listened to the other podcast. I know, but I want to get to because that was that was stuff that was in the original novel, and um, but here. You know, and I think the original novel, when you wrote it, aim fewer people knew about PPD and and all that stuff. But I would I would say, isn't part of it that you wanted to make a movie that anyone could watch to recognize that everybody has a broken part of themselves, where everyone's got breaks in various spots that are the things that are structural pieces that should hold them up, and that they have to find ways to reinforce those things instead of letting them buckle and to use them. Well, I don't know if you can ever use your, the things that broke you or, you know, cracked you. Um, Mm -hmm. But I think that you can remember that you made it through them and knowing that you had, knowing that you were able to do that, you can keep reminding yourself that you can continue. And, and talk a little bit about, so, so yeah, I, I just think that, look, if, if you're, you know, to me, what's amazing watching the movie in an audience with people, you know, I was just everyone in the theater, no matter what age they were, no matter what gender they were, no matter where they found themselves on the continuum of happy to sad walking into that theater, the catharsis I saw them go through during this film tells me that it's just about way more than postpartum depression. Yeah. You know what? Um, I'm glad you said that. I would actually just like to start over and not use the word postpartum depression. I actually would never have used the word postpartum depression. I hadn't even known the word postpartum depression when I wrote the book. Um, and then it became a way to sell the movie to investors to say, look, one out of every five women have this. So there's an audience here. But that's not what I was writing about. I was writing about memory and trauma and how there are these parts inside of me, these like memories that I can't quite put my finger on. And, you know, why, you know, how does memory work and why do things that we don't remember still somehow haunt haunt us? Um, and, and, and the fear of, which I think I write in, in everything that I write of, you know, what if I hurt the people that I love? What if I accidentally hurt you? <laughs> I mean, I'm worried about you being bored from this interview versus, you know, and what if I, you know, accidentally somehow hurt the kids? I mean, Anna said to me yesterday or something, I was like, well, that was probably from me, like something bad. And she was like, no, that, that why is that your new thing to look at all the ways that you failed as a mom instead of all the ways that you were great. And then in a film, what you do is you dramatize that stuff. So yeah. you heighten it, right? Cause it's not you. No, none of the things that happen in the movie, No, but the, the feelings in it are me, like the right. feelings of pain and self-loathing. Those are me. So anyway, I'm glad I don't want to use the word postpartum depression. It's about trauma. And, you know, 20 years passed since I wrote the book and I learned, a, learned a lot, you know, tw- 20 years ago, remember I got that phone call from like um, Julia Roberts producer or something. And I remember walking down the street speaking to her and I was like, you sure you don't have a problem with the ending? And she was like, yeah, no, it's fine. You know, she calls 911, everything's fine. And I remember she couldn't, the book was so painful to her. She had like put a totally different ending on the book. And um, you know, the book does have a totally different ending. It has infanticide and the woman has a psychotic break and you know, you can't call 911 if you're having a psychotic break. But in the 20 years, I was able to see lots of change and understand more about, you know, what was going on in in Julie's head and what I was really trying to say um, in the book. And well, well, one thing that got me, yes, and, and you then were able to, on your own, in your own at the script stage, make an ending that, that, synthesized more with the career of the woman, you know, with, with all the things that the woman in the movie was as different from the woman in the novel, as different from the woman who wrote the novel, right? Yes. Well, well, I was able to make it into a movie, which I guess is what you've been trying to get at this whole time. How do you, you know, how did, how did I turn it into a movie and create distance from it and really make her much different than, you know, make her a totally fictional character? 
Because um, that's the incredible achievement to me, no, reading the book, knowing you, and seeing this woman on screen who has at her essence certain of, like you say, uh, certain uh, facets of having to deal with hidden trauma, but none of the outer manifestation, despite the fact that they're wearing our old clothing, none of the outer manifestations are in any way like a life you lived. Well, I just wanted to write a movie about how scary it is to be a mom and how scary it is to walk through the world thinking you're an ugly, bad, dangerous person and you'll hurt the people that you love and not being able to see that you're a beautiful, good person who will nurture the people you love and, you know, give them life, you know, give them hope. Um, Well, yeah. Well, one, I want to talk a a bit about this because a bit about one aspect of this, that one thing that drove me crazy is that a couple of reviewers, two reviewers wrote in the review of your movie wrote about me. And they were like, that I was your husband as though I was able to help this happen. (laughs) I wish that was true. Well, this is what I was going to say. I want to talk about the fact that I had to sit and sit on my hands to not get involved as you fought for the integrity of your film, because that is another part of this story. I think the reason other directors at times didn't want to touch this material was because when you presented them with all that stuff, you had this ownership over the creative vision. And I want you to talk a little bit about how one fights for the creative ownership, because AIM, uh, even, people in the world of postpartum depression lobbied you to make changes in the finished film and threatened you. Yeah, they tried to. Uh, I'm tempted to name, I'm tempted to name those motherfuckers. They tried to extort Sony. I mean, some people who were close to you uh, betrayed you and uh, tried to, uh, you know. Well, to turn it into a PSA. They wanted it to be a PSA. And you, and it was a a human betrayal. And I, uh, I want you to talk a little bit about how as a filmmaker, because you were powerless. Right. You were powerless, meaning someone else financed the film. Some other people were distributing the film. If you got lucky enough to, to get a distributor, which you did. And uh, there was a lot of pressure brought to bear on you to make a lot of changes. Yeah. Well, I, I, I don't want to sound whiny. It's not whiny. I would just say, just talk about, I'm not demonizing anyone except this one motherfucker who I do demonize. But everybody else, uh, I don't. And uh, but just talk about what it means to find a way to protect your creative vision while not alienating your creative partners. Well, these are all the things that you don't think about, or I didn't think about, you know, beforehand. If I had thought about them beforehand, they would have stopped me from, you know, pursuing getting the financing. You know, you don't have what's called final cut. So you know the whole time that your movie can be taken and re-edited by the producers to whatever they want. By the financiers. By the financiers. You and Mike were the producers, along with Celine and Trudy, who were also financiers and who also had the best interest of the movie at heart. But but there was pressure brought up to bear on them, too. Yes. Well, you know, I mean, I think... That's, I think there were 43 people that um, invested in the film. So when you think about the amount of phone calls that Celine Rattray must have made to get this film financed, which is funny when you say, like, the people think you helped me. I mean, <laughs> it, it would be so great if there was somebody, you know, at your agency who had wanted to help raise the money or had wanted to represent me. But um, these women did the greatest thing. They believed in me and they believed in the film. And, you know, that's probably, that was a giant leap of faith, but they protected themselves by having final cut. And I knew that. And so, you know, during filming, I tried to do as few cheesy cuts as I, as I possibly could so that like they wouldn't have certain things. I'll just say this. There's an unambiguous, without spoiling the movie, I'll just say this. There's an unambiguous ending. And there was a lot of pressure on you 
to make it an ambiguous ending. So just talk about how you draw a line in the sand as an artist when you actually don't have the sand or the stick to draw the line in. Well, how do, what's the process? They didn't, they didn't, sorry. So in March of uh, 2009, uh, 2000 and uh, 2020, right before COVID hit and we all went into quarantine, we had um, a screening in Tribeca and people stayed for an hour and people were arguing about the movie and crying. And I just loved this version of the movie. I thought the movie was done. I know there were things you didn't even love about this version of the movie, but I thought that it brought the viewer to where I wanted the viewer to be at the end of the movie, which was figure out a way to live, figure out a way to continue because you will miss so much if you don't. That actually is what the whole movie is about in the 40 minutes that we've been talking we finally got here. But uh, that's what I wanted to write a movie about. And they decided it was better to take out certain elements and just make it about a woman and her singular story, you know, not have different time periods. And um, they took it out of the movie and they made me take it out of the movie. And, you know, I tried, I knew it wasn't as good. I knew it didn't give people the same feeling. And then it started getting rejected from festivals and they refused to, to, you know, screen both versions. Because the unambiguous ending was making certain in people around the movie feel. Well, that, that came even later. First, they wanted uh, a very so, clear I, I, yeah, ending that I thought was small and boring. Like, uh, I Well, mean, I guess what I would like, what I think it's more useful to talk about because it's hard for people in the audience to picture these various endings. Okay. Is just what you did. There was an, there was a vision, a version of the movie that you felt was the movie that you wanted out in the world or as close as you could get right. to it. And, it, know, had, it showed, and there was a different version that other people were lobbying for. Right. So the, in my version of the movie, it showed what happened 20 years later. And in that part, that was the part that made me want to tell the movie. It was the entire story to me. I didn't want to tell a story in the, like in the novel where like, you know, a woman goes and she kills herself. Like I, I'd been beyond that. That's not what I wanted to tell a story about. I wanted to talk about, the collateral damage of suicide and of not pressing on, as you say, of not, of not pressing, getting yeah. through it and keep keeping to continuing to live if you yeah. can. So I, I, I guess the spoilers don't really matter. Um, since the book is, is out there, we kind of know what happens at the end. So I had put on this present day storyline onto the movie. It was very important to me and they had taken it away because in that screening, some people didn't like it. And so they took it away and we fought and fought for months about it. And I'm somebody who's lived my whole life to, you know, com based on like, you know, conflict avo avoidance. And um, when it didn't get into a couple of film festivals, when it didn't get into Sundance, I knew we had a problem. What, what I'm really interested in getting to how you how you kept the faith and just kept going and the the way in which you were able to show the financiers that uh your version of the movie was the strongest version of the movie director has to find a way to get their voice heard about what the movie should be because no director has final cut there are five directors who have final cut and I think what's useful is how does an artist know which lines to draw where and then what desperate steps to take? Well, for me, because I'm always conflict avoidant, I try to meet in the middle. And when I realized that meeting in the middle wasn't an option, I made two different keynotes. The best thing was I learned how to work keynote. Nice. And I made two different surveys with questions. And I knew there was only really one question that mattered, which was, would you tell your friend to see this movie? But they were, you know, in-depth questions that were the basic things that we were fighting over creatively. And we finally got 15 people to watch one, 15 people to watch the other. I didn't pick the 15 people. So that way 
you know, I couldn't, you know, have my thumb on the scale or whatever that expression is. Um, and my version just tested much better than their version. And my version wasn't even my version. My version was still like the, even the final version of the movie is not my original version. Can you of the talk movie. a little bit about what it felt like going through this and, and how you didn't just, what made you not just throw up your hands? Cause watching that. But I knew I just had one shot. I had one shot and I knew that if it came out and there were bad reviews, but it was the movie that I wanted to make, then I would knew that I would be okay because I would have known that I made something beautiful and that the people that needed to under needed yes. it and would understand it would somehow find it. Like I just had faith in that. And, you know, I don't know, maybe it's turning 50, but at some point you just realize that, you know, the worst thing that people can do is say no. So I guess making a movie is kind of like growing old. Like if you think about growing old, it's overwhelming, you know, but if you just <laughs> take it day by day or, you know, issue by issue or this very obnoxious expression, uh, you know, f putting out each fire, as they say, you know, in the movie business, then um, you can figure it out. And so ultimately I was able to get a compromised ending and um, I was able to say what I wanted to say in the movie, even though it wasn't exactly the way I wanted to say it. But I, you can't let people change the meaning of what you're trying to say. You can't let people tell you that they understand the yes. message and why it's important more than you do. And it was kind of mind boggling to me because, you know, I wrote the book, I wrote the screenplay, I drew all these pictures, you know, hundreds of pictures for the animation. I got Amanda in the movie. I rewrote every scene with Amanda and somehow everybody knew better about what I was trying to say than I did. And you know, it was very frustrating, but, you know, it was such a giant opportunity and gift to get to make the movie that I just kept thinking about that and, you know, fi finding a way to get it to the people who need it by at least having the message, the right message there about continuance, about, you know, getting through another day. And so I thought about that and that's what it that's how I got through each argument. And I would see in your eyes and in Sam and Anna's eyes, this look of like, oh, geez, <laughs> you know, you're not going to beat, you're not going to win this. This is an impossible thing to win. But I had no other option than to figure out how, how to, to keep fighting. Yeah. I mean, this kind of brings us back to, you know, in the beginning of this interview, you tried to talk about how you weren't really prepared to direct a movie. But I think when we get here, maybe talk a little bit more about, you know, the promise you made to yourself when you were standing on the set of a movie you'd written, but the vision of it wasn't going to be, again, nobody's, nobody's fault. The director, it's a director's medium film. But you were standing there and, and in my view, you very diligently, so like I know I got to stand on the set of my first movie with a great director, but that experience, and I, I do think this is a thing, as you, you like to talk about acculturated men versus women, the way men or a certain era of men were, were acculturated, just be like, I think I could do that. And then suddenly they can do it, whether they can or they can't. You know, I stood on the set of the first movie watched how the movie was shot. And then Dave and I went off and directed the next movie because we, we watched. So you lived your experience to become a director no different than mine. Uh, yet you want to say that you weren't, you know, prepared or didn't know where to put a camera now. It took no, me a long time that's to not what I, that, I, I, wait, I, say it. That's yeah, please say what that that's where I want to get back to. I'm saying I'm not, I haven't studied directing and put in the amount of time as a great director. So I knew that I had to rely on my strengths and my strengths were understanding feelings. And I knew that if I put the headphones down and I just set up the shot and then I got as close to Amanda as possible and I felt her and if she, if I could feel what I knew the character needed to feel, then I knew the screen would capture it. And I and is that was how you gonna with the other actors? That. I was gonna protect that at all costs. And you know, um, I am a different person than I was before making that movie. I do stand up a little straighter and I am a little less 
scared because I didn't realize that that was inside of me, the ability to fight that way. Um, I, I think that that's part of that is, you know, I probably repressed that kind of power inside of me my whole life because I thought I would be punished for it. Sure. Because, you know, anytime you ask for too much, I mean, or if you're somebody who's kind of used to hiding so that you don't get in the way, then this is worse than you're know, talking about childhood trauma. Yeah, about childhood making trauma. a movie is worse than wearing, you know, a bikini to the beach. So, um, sure. Well, yeah, especially if I were wearing a bikini yeah. to the beach, that wouldn't be great. But um, when you walk on a set, how do you know to recognize it's not just insecurity? This is really wrong. Uh, oh, it, would it look like in my head? And oh, how do you balance that thing of you want it to look like the feeling you had in your head, but Actually, that piece of it's better than what was in my head. That piece of it isn't as good. Like, how did you learn to adapt and then to know when to draw like, like, okay, this has to be just like this. We have to redo that wall and shoot the other way first. Well, because we only had a 21 day shoot, I knew I had to be economical with the shots. And so, like I said, I was really just caring about the emotion that I was trying to portray. So anything that I didn't like, if it didn't get in the way of portraying that emotion, I, I was like, okay, this is fine. I have to live with this. Anything that got in the way, I had to say, this is wrong. And, you know, deal with hurting people's feelings and having people be upset with me and know that like people were talking behind my back and saying, you know, I don't think the illustrations are good enough. She'd be a better artist. I don't like what she's wearing. You know, I just had to deal with that. And I'm somebody who, you know, never wants to hurt anyone's feelings and always wants people to, you know, like me and not be mad at me. Um, but I quickly yeah. learned to ignore that and again, go like, no, all that's important is that I get the feelings. And I was very lucky because I was so close with Amanda and every day, like, there's, um, I guess a third of the movie must take place in the apartment. And there was a little room in another apartment and we would like have, you know, a half an hour or 40 minutes and we would, you know, lie down on the bed and give each other like a hug. And then, you know, I would tell her what I was scared about. She would tell me what she was scared about. And then we'd go back out there and having her to like, you know, commiserate with that very, very much helped. Like I could never have made this movie without her as my partner. What is it about being a filmmaker that you love? Like, what is it that wants you to get back in there and do it again? You're, you're totally forced to be in the present. And so for those 21 days, as silly as it sounds, I never once thought about death. I never once thought about what would happen if you died? What would happen if the kids died? Like, I could only think about, uh-oh, tomorrow I have to be there by this time. I'm only going to get three hours of sleep. I know these three people really don't like me on set. I know this person hates me on set, so I'll turn to so-and-so. They'll be able to help me. I have to make sure that I get this emotion, this emotion, and this emotion. And, and by having your brain filled up like that, it has no time to swirl. And what about storytelling? Like, have, has, What is it about getting lost in telling stories, these kind of stories? And, and you know, stories about trauma in a way that is so, you know, it was just an article in New Yorker. I didn't read it yet about how people should stop writing about trauma. But what is it about these kinds of stories that you bring forces you? Because yes, of course, when you're in engaging work, uh, it allows you to be present. But you chose this work. You know, you have two Ivy League degrees. You could have been a doctor. You could have done anything. What is it? And, you know, that's pretty involving work, too. What is it about storytelling that matters so much to you? And because, you know, you're someone who loves to watch stories and read. I mean, what is it about telling stories that is so vitally important to you? I just always want to understand the why, you know, why do we live? Why do we continue to live despite the fact that we all know we're going to die? How do we continue to do that? And that's why, you know, I'd like to, you, you had mentioned reviews earlier, and I'd like to think I was a better person than this, but 
the reviews, um, that w- there was one morning when the reviews came out and the first two reviews from the LA Times and New York Times killed me. And I felt like they hadn't even watched the movie. I mean, on one hand, I had this postpartum group saying the movie was you know, going to upset people too much. And here, you know, I've got some writers saying the movie's not deep enough. Um, and it bothered me that they didn't, I thought, I don't think you stopped to ask why, you know, why is she telling this story? What is she trying to say in the story? And why would she work this hard to tell this story? Um, and I think that that's, um, I remember starting to talk about this with Elvis, that that's a problem that we have in general. I don't think we stop to ask why enough. I think we judge people and I guess, you know, by extension, their work. And um, we, we don't actually look at it, you know, for, fa- for face value. Yeah, I think that's really brilliant and a really good uh, way to go through life is to try to understand why people are doing and saying the things that they do. You know, it's funny, it's the opposite, right? There's that moment in Casino when, uh, when Pesci stabs the guy in the neck with the pen and, uh, and De Niro says, well, I was trying to figure out why the guy was talking to me that way. You know, Nikki just took action. And in the movie, you're meant to understand that in their world, De Niro's character, Ace, trying to understand it was weakness, but in fact, it's strength and more sophisticated. And yes, I too will never forgive that reporter, that reviewer from the LA Times who stuck my name in and clearly didn't, not only didn't watch the movie, but uh, chose, made a decision. I'm, I'm interested in her why too, but made a decision to make it a snark fest instead of trying to understand it. And, um, and I would just say to the audience listening to this, give a mouthful of air a shot. I was almost going to say it's not an easy viewing, but the truth is, Aim, you only have to watch four minutes of this movie to understand that, in fact, you are a director. And this is what's so great about your interview with Elvis Mitchell. You know, I always felt when Elvis was writing reviews, the greatest thing about his reviews was I always felt like he understood. The first thing he would do in his reviews is, what is this purporting to be? What is it trying to be? And does it achieve that? And I have no doubt in my mind that a mouthful of air achieves that which you were trying to do, that which you set out to do. And um, I know I can't wait to see the next thing that you jump into an attack with the same level of fire um, and commitment. Hey, where can people find you online, Aim? Uh, I'm on Instagram. I'm actually verified on Instagram. As what? <laughs> which is Are you Amy Koppelman on I'm Instagram? The worst, worst poster in the world. Um, I'm Amy underlined Koppelman. At, on, at Instagram. All right. Go find Amy there. You can find me at Brian Koppelman on uh, Twitter or Instagram occasionally. I think TikTok. I'm Brian W. Koppelman. And uh, I will be back next week. If you have anything you want to say to me, you can email me at themomentbk at gmail.com. And uh, I'll see you next time, everybody. Happy New Year.